recency bias is the fact that we tend to overweight that whatever has happened in the most recent past, whether it's months or years, and ignore the long-term evidence. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your well, fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm today, I'm continuing my discussions with Larry Swedro, who is head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his story in episode 645. Larry has a deep understanding of the world of academic research and investing, and especially risk. Today, we're going to discuss a chapter from his book, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. Today, we're going to be talking about mistake number two. Do you project recent trends indefinitely into the future? Larry, take it away. Yeah, so my book that you just mentioned covers 77 investment mistakes. If I were to, it was actually the second edition of a book. The first was called Rational Investing in Irrational Times. That book covered 52 mistakes. Several years later, I had it up to 77. And if I were to write it today, it'd probably be around 90 because I've learned there are other mistakes people make. And a lot of them are really interrelated. Recency bias is the fact that we tend to overweight whatever has happened in the most recent past, whether it's months or years, and ignore the long-term evidence. So if you think about what is likely to happen to that, so let's just go back to, let's say, 1995, and you're watching the market, and you see that high technology stocks in 96, 7, and 8 have done great, and you think, and you read this time is different and everything, and you then go ahead and now you buy based upon that recent trend and you project that will go on indefinitely into the future. Of course, that's literally impossible because the high-tech stocks were returning like, say, 30% a year and trees don't grow to the sky. So what happens when you do that if you buy things that have done really well in the last few years, and now you think it's safe, boy, this is the right thing, what you've done is bought high. You didn't get those great returns. You're paying high prices, and high prices in general mean you're going to get low expected returns. Of course, in the short term, high prices can get even higher, and that's how bubbles happen. And the same thing is true on the other side of the coin, if something does poorly for a number of years, then they project it on. So let's think about what happens. It's 1970s and 80s, Andrew. Do you happen to remember what was the, if you could think of equity investments, that was the best single place to be? What might it have been as a country? 
Good question. I mean, we were going through inflation in the 70s. 70s and, then... and 80s was a great decade for stocks. Mm. 70s, not so much. Right. But 70s and 80, there was one country dramatically outperformed everything Japan. Else. That's right. Yeah. And, the, and at that point, Japan had done now great, far outperformed the U.S. for a long time. And of course, their prices were high. And then everyone said, well, we go to buy Japan, right? And by 1999, the Nikkei, sorry, by 1990, the Nikkei was just under 40,000, having far outperformed. We were reading all kinds of articles that Japan Inc. was snapping up the whole world. They were buying Rockefeller Center and famous golf courses. And there were no more semiconductor plants in the U.S., Japan was dominating the world. And the next deck, you know, the next 32 years, the Nikkei has gone from about 40,000 to today about 27,000. Mm. And investors who bet on that recent trend obviously got hurt. So the 70s and 80s, the international stocks outperformed, and then investors flooded in especially things like emerging markets, other stuff. And then the 90s, the U.S. dramatically outperformed. By the end of that decade, everyone's convinced that the U.S. is now the place to invest. And the next decade, international and emerging markets far outperform. <laughs> and so now they say, OK, we made a mistake. We should have stayed the core. And now they buy emerging markets. And now the teens... That decade, the U.S. had outperformed. And now I would bet the odds favor, it's not a guarantee, that international is likely to outperform because it's U.S. had outperformed by so much that prices have gotten so high, mm. reflecting those great returns. And now you have much lower expected returns. But investors are persistently chasing returns and then why would I buy emerging markets? It's had a, a very bad decade. Mm. You know, it's, you know, what you didn't do well. So what I try to remind people is this. One of the worst mistakes besides this recency bias or the way to maybe overcome recency bias is know your history. And what history tells us is this. All risk assets. I don't care you can name any asset you want, from gold to real estate to U.S. stocks to small stocks to value stocks, high yield bonds, it doesn't matter. They all go through very long periods of poor performance. And what that means is you don't want to be subject to recency bias because you think that three years is a long time to judge performance. Five years is a very long time and 10 years is an eternity. If emerging markets doesn't do well for 10 years, why would I want to own it? Well, any good financial economist would tell you that 10 years with risk assets is likely noise. Mm. There has to be that risk that even over a decade, an asset could do poorly. Otherwise, there would be no risk for an investor with a 10-year horizon. Just have yeah. to wait it out. So good examples of that problem is there are three periods, this shocks most people, of at least 13 years 
with the S&P underperformed T-bills. From 29 to 43, from 66 to 82, and then again from 2000 to 12. Now, of course, the other half of the period of that last, stocks did great, but you don't get those returns if you're subject to recency bias. The last decade, it did terrible. So mm. I'm getting out. I don't want to own that. The message that I try to give investors is this. There are no clear crystal balls. Don't be subject to this recency bias because you will be forever chasing and buying high and selling low, which is not exactly a prescription for success. You cannot run away from risks. You can only choose which risk you're going to take. And if you don't have a clear crystal ball, there's only one answer that's logical. You should hyper-diversify on as many different unique risks as you can and then stay the course. And that means rebalancing. So when something does well recently, you're not jumping on the bandwagon, you're jumping off and removing some of your assets to get it back down to your, say, 10% allocation, because now it's 13 because it's done well, and you're buying what's done poorly. That forces you to do what Warren Buffett, maybe the greatest investor of all time, has told people, which is don't try to time the market, but if you're going to, because you can't resist, buy when everyone else is panic selling and sell when everyone else is getting greedy. That's what rebalancing forces you to do. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of a story because I moved to Thailand. I came to Asia for the first time in 1989. So right at the tail end of that Japanese boom. And then I moved to Thailand in 1992. And I got my first job in the stock market in 1993. I can remember it was September 1993. In between, between September and January of 1994, the Thai stock market doubled. And it hit a peak at 1789. That was in 1994, January. So the end of, let's say, 93. And it fell 90%. And if you put it in US and dollar terms- And almost caused the global crisis, by yeah. the way. And if you look at it, if you put it in US dollar terms, because the bot also absolutely collapsed, you're talking about a 95% fall in US dollar terms. And so just because you mentioned that about Japan, I looked at the stock market right now and today it's not at 1789. So here we are 30 years later and it's at 1,300, sorry, 1,037. So about a thousand. So it still has not recovered just like Japan. And that's where I think people don't realize how long a down cycle needs to happen when you have such a bubble, you know, or an extreme rise. And that's another thing that investors get hooked in this recency bias. They ignore that one of the most powerful forces in the universe is reversion to the mean of abnormal returns, both good and bad. Now, that's not necessarily true of individual stocks. For example, a stock could do poorly and then eventually go bankrupt, right? But it's true of country indices or any broad diversified portfolio. When you have a bad period of performance, that's likely a result of the fact that valuations 
are falling. And if you have valuations falling, your earnings to price ratio is going up, which means your expected returns are going up. But investors run away from the bad performance instead of rebalancing their portfolio. Which, you know, you use the example for recency bias in kind of the go-go years when something's really exciting. But now let's look at the other side. When markets are really down and all the news is negative, do we have the same, is it the same type of recency bias or is it even worse that we're even more concerned about the downside and therefore we just never going to put our money in? And I know in this mistake number two in the chapter in your book, you talk about John Bogle's the yawning gap between fund returns and shareholder returns. How how do we think about recency bias? Is it symmetrical or asymmetrical in our decision-making? No, uh, it definitely works on both sides. Mm. Let's say that. So whatever is done well, people jump on the bandwagon. Let's use the term fear of missing out or FOMO, right? Yep. Okay. But on the downside, we know it's actually worse because losses have a much bigger impact than an equal size gain in how we feel. So if you just take $100, for example, we feel twice as bad if we lose $100 than if we make it. And if you turn it around to a million dollars, maybe the multiple is 10. And you know, the bigger the number gets, you know, the worse that ratio becomes. So what happens is when markets are going down, we're feeling that pain and you project that's going to keep going down. Now your stomach, here's what I think happens. Your stomach starts to scream what I call GMO, which is get me out. And I've yet to meet a stomach that makes good decisions which the key to avoiding that is don't take more risk than you can stomach in the first place, mm. right? And then just stick with your plan and don't chase returns. So that's how you deal with that. But I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten in recent weeks since Silicon Valley Bank, the investor asking Larry, this is this, I, should, I'm, I want to sell everything and buy gold. Mm. And I said, I'll bet you're a Republican. And without even knowing, I never met this person, and I would be willing to put money on it, not with certainty, but more than a 50-50 bet, because one of the biases that we have is a political bias. <laughs> and there's a really interesting studies on this. So I'll, I'll mention why did I think it was a Republican? Because here's what happens. When the party you favor is in power, and bad things happen, are you more likely to think that they will take actions to correct the problem? Or are you more likely to think that the problem will get worse? And think about it from the other side when the party you don't like is in power. Of course, the opposing party is going to mess it up. Right. Exactly. And your party will fix it. So, The research shows, for example, in the U.S., if you were a Republican in the Bush administration in 2008, you got better returns than the Democrats because we had these crisis 2001, the war Mm. and stuff, right? 
the Republicans would think they'll solve the problem. We'll get out of this recession, 911 events. And they didn't panic and sell or were much less likely to do so. And the Democrats were more likely to say, this guy's a dummy. He's going to screw it up. And they would <laughs> panic and sell. Then when Obama became president, Democrats got better returns, where the Republicans were the ones saying, we're in this crisis. You know, we'll never get out of it. Obama, you know, they'll screw it up. And then when Trump was president, Republicans got better returns. And I would bet that the Democrats have, well, we're not, I can't be sure yet on this one because the market crashed in mm. 2022. So the Republicans right. who got out of the market may have done better, but the term isn't over yet. Mm. Right. So we have to be aware that our biases, like political bias, cause us to take action when inaction is almost always better. And one of the other reasons why that I would argue the recency bias can be even more painful or difficult in the down market times when the economy's bad and you're thinking I, I is because there are secondary effects. I mean, when in 1997, when the economy collapsed and the market collapsed in Thailand, my business that I had started with my best friend, a coffee business, the factory, basically our customers dried up. And then I lost my job as, you know, working as an analyst at an investment bank. And then we decided to move into the factory. So here we are in the factory to preserve assets and all that. Yeah, if I have excess assets, it's a very real feeling that I could lose my job, I could lose my salary, things could really fall apart. So it expands beyond. Now, when it's the stock market rising, you're like, yeah, wow, I can buy a house now, I can buy this car, and it's a different feeling. So, and in some cases, it was very real. I did lose my job, and our business went through a very tough time. So I would say we're really susceptible to that recency bias when the news is bad. Well, clearly, one of the things that I write about in my books, like the only guide you'll ever need for the right financial plan or your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement, a lot of investors, when they set up their asset allocation, they think about their investment horizon and say, well, I've got a long horizon, say I'm 40 years old, I've got to be investing, say, at least for 30 years before I would start to withdraw. I can with wait out a bear market. Well, that's true, but it's only a necessary condition to take a high equity allocation, not a sufficient condition. Mm. The sufficient condition is your labor capital has to be low correlated with the economic risks of stocks. Because if the stock market goes down because you're in a recession, you could get laid off and now you don't have a job, and now you have to sell stocks when the market's already crashed to put food on the table, and you can't recover. So a tenured professor at Yale or a doctor can take more economic cycle risk and therefore hold more stocks, or a government worker, a teacher, a civil servant can take more, at least in the U.S. anyway, can mm. take more risk that may be a construction worker, an automobile worker, you know, somebody who is much more prone to being laid off uh, here in the home construction business, uh, et cetera. Those people should not take as much equity risk in the first place because their labor capital is 
closely tied to the economic cycle risk. Mm, yep. And I don't want to go off this topic without talking about this concept of fund returns and shareholder returns that John Bogle did, because is this evidence of our bad behavior? I mean, from recency bias and other biases, can you explain about that? Yeah, so there's a difference between mutual fund returns and the returns that investors in that fund actually earn. So Peter Lynch once told this story how during a relatively bad period for him, he just barely beat the market. His fund had gone up and then went down and then came back up, but his fund outperformed. But the average investor in his fund actually lost money. And the reason is they watched the fund do great, recency bias causing them to buy. Then the fund did poorly, and then they sold. And then, of course, the fund recovered, but they weren't there. The best example recently of this recency (laughs) bias and the gap between fund returns and investor returns would be Kathy Woods and her ARC mutual fund. The first couple of years, the fund was this little fund. No one was paying attention to it, had mediocre returns. And then it had spectacular returns for a couple of years up through about 2021. And the returns, like the first year was up 100%, the next year up another big, but the fund had almost no assets. Mm. By the time at the end of 2021, say, or somewhere around there, the fund had billions. Why? Because everyone wanted to jump on that bandwagon, that FOMO, fear of missing out, recency bias. And then the fund dropped 70%. And so the returns over the five-year period were still okay. But the average investor had massive losses. Mm because they bought the fund when it was up here and it ended up down there. And that's the perfect example of that, you know, happening. I'll give you one other example that everyone can relate to was Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin started out worth pennies, right? And it was when it was trading at about 20,000 a few months ago before the recent rally. Last I looked, it was about 28. The average investor had lost money. Now, how could that be? It went from pennies, right? Because a lot of people bought at 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and 69,000, I think, was the high. So the average investor's cost, I think, was something like 20,000 and it got down to 16,000 before it rallied. Mm. So that's a great example of the gap. Now, I think there's obviously some net profits but we'll see what happens. So I want to read this paragraph out of your book because I I think this is a great way to wrap this discussion up because I think that it's a bigger effect than what people think. People think, okay, yeah, so I make some bad decisions now and then. But here's what you said. We also have evidence from a study done by the Bogle Financial Markets Center. The sample consisted of the 200 funds with the largest cash inflows for the five-year period 1996 through 2000. The time-weighted return of the funds and the dollar-weighted return of investors in those funds were compared 
for the 10-year period 1996 to 2005. The average time-weighted return for the 200 mutual funds was 8.9% per year. So let's say 9%. Now that's the return that the fund reports. Yep. If you look at Morningstar or you get a annual report, that's the number that they will show. Yep. And then you say, however, the actual dollar-weighted return earned by investors was just 2 0.4%, a gap of 6.5% per year. That's just shocking. How could it now, be I don't think such... that's representative of the typical average investor experience, but that is a the reason you see that is that was a period of boom and then bust. If you have a more normal markets are going up steadily at a certain pace, then you probably don't see... You might see a gap of one or two percent, but not as big as that. But when you get booms and then busts, like with Kathy Woods and Arc, you can see massive differences between the time weighted and the dollar weighted returns of funds. Yeah. I just found that, you know, absolutely fascinating. I remember reading, you know, his work many years ago and realizing that we really can do a lot of damage to our return if we get caught up in recency bias. So what I'd like to do is just kind of highlight to everybody who's listening is that one of the first steps that, that you got to take in this case is understand that you are subject to recency bias. And if you can step back when you're being flooded with information, that, that you step back and try to understand that a little bit more. That's the first step. And I guess the second step is that if you are doing something such as dollar cost averaging, well, you're pretty much taking care of the recency bias because you're just buying, you know, on a continual basis, no matter what's happening. So is there any wrap up that you would give to help people think about how to make sure that you don't fall for recency bias? Let me add one thing and then we'll wrap it up. Mm. And it, another related problem with recency bias is confirmation bias. And so if you think that there, you're reading all these articles about these destructive or disruptive industries and technologies, artificial intelligence, and all the kinds of stocks that Kathy Woods are buying, and you read an article talking about that, and what tends to happen is we get an echo chamber effect. We hear exactly what we want to hear, and it, it makes us feel even better. And then we ignore all the other evidence. So, for example, AI may help these companies that are high tech creating it, but it may help Walmart much better in terms of how it serves its clients and, and which products to put on the shelves and, you know, and, and all those kinds of helping CVS and all these store, all these value companies, traditional manufacturers are using that same AI to help. So there's a really a brand new paper on this echo chamber effect. And what they found is this, when people read Twitter or tweets about a stock that they like and they only see the bullish signals because they follow people who are recommending, say, Tesla, and you like Tesla. That will cause them to become more optimistic and buy Tesla. 
However, if they are more open-minded and follow people, say, I also want to see what the negatives say, so I get a more balanced view, those people do better in the market. The ones who hear only one side of the story have very poor returns. The ones who listen to both sides still underperform the market because of trading costs and the market's too efficient, but they only lose by a little bit. They mm-hmm. tend not to be heard as bad. So this confirmation bias can really compound the problem. And lots of other biases, like your political bias, mm. can compound the problem. So how do you overcome this? What do smart people do to avoid those mistakes? Because we're all subject to those biases. Everyone, I'm subject to them, but I work hard because I know about them. Mm. And I work hard to avoid. There's a simple solution. Have a well-thought-out plan. You write down your asset allocation. should be hyper-diversified. And then once a month or once a quarter, just take a look at it and rebalance and ignore what is going on in the market. Mm. There's actually a study that shows there's a negative correlation between how often you check your portfolio's values and your returns. You're best off being Rip Van Winkle and go to sleep for 20 years. You're likely to have better returns than if you're on your cell phone every hour checking what's going on with stock prices or anything else. So that's my advice. Have a well thought out plan. You can learn how to write it in my book. You're a complete Mm -hmm. guide to a successful and secure retirement. Well, Larry, thank you for another great discussion to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. And for the listeners out there, you can go to Amazon is probably the easiest place to see all of Larry's work, including the book that we're talking about, Investment Mistakes Even Smart Investors Make and How to Avoid Them. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying I'll see you on The Upside.